Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us. My name's Andrew Dunkley and with me, of course, is astronomer at large Fred Watson for episode 125 of Space Nuts. Hello, Fred. <laughs> we are churning through them, Andrew, aren't, they? aren't we? They seem to come and go with uh, incredible regularity. Absolutely. I'm worried. We're, I'm worried we're we're in a you know a, a sort of uh, uh, one of these time warps that doesn't let us <laughs> move. Yeah, like a Groundhog Day scenario. Groundhog Day. That was one of the <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, I, I, I get that feeling sometimes. Uh, every, my Monday to Fridays are, are nothing like they used to be, and uh, there's all sorts of quirks and and bends in the road in my normal week so there's nothing yep. normal about my life anymore no, that's, well that's that's mm. good it keeps you young it uh, does uh, just to reassure our listeners we do cover new stuff every every week yes yes if, <laughs> if you think we've spoken about something before then it's your imagination or we have oh. <laughs> it almost certainly will have had and yes. in, in fact our first story today is exactly like that because we've talked about this before but we're going to talk about it again yes um, we, we, this is uh, an interesting story about uh, fast radio bursts that have been detected i think they're saying they've found about 20 of them which is very exciting we're also going to look at uh, geomagnetic thunder um, now uh, geomagnetic storms are well known and of course the uh, northern and southern lights and all that sort of stuff but apparently they do make noise and we've got a couple of questions we're going to bump off today um, our good friend Aziz in Uganda has sent us a question which I initially thought had nothing to do with astronomy but uh, Fred tells me there is a link and we've got another question about um, um, particles at absolute zero whether or not we can detect them with current technology we will find out because fred knows <laughs> fred knows everything uh yeah. but first fred let's talk about these fast radio bursts that have been detected now i am automatically defaulting my brain to the wow signal which was a big radio burst that they detected once and never again and they've been looking for it ever since is this the same kind of thing um i think this is different because uh they uh, the, the wow signal was um, uh, lasted for a considerable time. I think it was something like 79 seconds, and um, and that 79 seconds was while the sig well whatever was emitting the signal was in the beam of the telescope because this is a radio telescope. Uh, so it probably lasted longer, but they never found it again, as mm. you said. So these are quite different. Um, and um, a colleague. I was speaking with last night said that they should be called fast radio bursts uh, <laughs> because <laughs> because they're fast. <laughs> so rather than fast radio bursts, they're fast radio bursts. Yeah, that's right, fast radio bursts. Okay. Um, that's that's that's, um, that's that's pretty good astronomical humour. Uh, I think so too. Got to yeah. give him a, a big tick for that one. Yeah, um, yeah, you do. Uh, sadly, he wasn't an astronomer. He was a radio announcer. <laughs> yes. That's why. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> anyway, um, so what are what are fast radio bursts? They are um, uh, things that were detected actually back in I think it was 2007 uh, when a group of American astronomers uh, who were uh, interested in supernovae, which are exploding stars, um, they were trawling through the data from the Parkes radio telescope because that's all archived and you can you can go back and look through it if you're a scientist and make head and tail of what it means. Mm. But that's what they were doing. And they came across um, this signal, uh, the fast radio burst, which was exactly as the name described because that's what they've been called. It, it lasts for a millisecond. So a thousandth of a second. Wow, that, is pre- that is fast. It's very fast, yeah, and pours out a colossal amount of energy uh, in that time. And so that was the first one. Um, since then, over the years, which is what, that's 11 years ago, um, 34 of these things have been detected. And two things about them. One is that they are all over the sky. They're not in a particular direction. So they're not some alien species signaling from one corner of the universe well it's, because, you know in that sort of time you can't even say hello you go that's yeah that's about, right <laughs> that's about it yeah, you what would. was that again we're yeah. invading is what they're saying no yeah so it's not it, yeah so it is some natural phenomenon uh, the other thing is that one of these of um, fast radio bursts or these sources whatever they are uh, actually repeats and i think it's repeated you know, a dozen times or something like that. So this is in the, exactly the same direction. But that is the only one that does. Mm. Most of them are just one-offs and they, they kind of, you know, come and go. There was a bit of a, uh, and I'm sure you and I have talked about this, there was a little bit of um, a furphy, uh, a, you know, a false alarm, a red herring is what the, the words I'm looking for, uh, which happened a few years ago uh, when um, there was a signal that was very similar to fast radio bursts. Uh, but was eventually traced to people opening the microwave cooker door in the parked radio telescope. That's right. Or they yes. switched it off. I remember. So as you open it, there's this fast radio burst comes out. The telescope <laughs> picks up. They even gave them a name, peritons, they called them. Um, but they they are now known to be, you know, um, terrestrial in source in origin. That made big news in Australia. Yeah, it did. I that know. was huge. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's a terribly. slow news day story for sure. It's terribly embarrassing when you, you know, when you. It's not as embarrassing as saying that the universe is brown when it's actually blue. Oh well, we did that too. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's the other way around. Um, was it? The first, the first, it was turquoise at first, and and to be honest, I have to say, I looked at that paper, and I know the guy who did it, and he's pretty smart, and I thought that can't be right. The universe cannot be turquoise; it's the wrong color. And then about a week later, he released a another bulletin that said no i got it wrong it's what was it beige i think it was beige, yeah <laughs> pretty boring when you think about it <laughs> anyway notwithstanding all that um the reason why we're talking about fast radio bursts again is that um the australian square kilometer array pathfinder um or ascap this is a telescope uh, which is in Murchison uh, at, in Western Australia. It's in the desert. Although when I visited it last month, it poured down. It was very, very wet. It's actually quite pretty country with a lot of scrubland. It's very flat. Um, and interesting plants, too, at this time of the year, especially when there's a bit of rain, including something called Sturt's Desert Pea, which oh, I've never yes. seen before. It's a lovely plant. Very spectacular. Anyway, um, yes, so the ASCAP telescope um, has just come online uh, over the, uh, basically over the last decade. Uh, it's 36 radio antennas 
uh, spread over an area of the uh, Murchison Desert, and they're they're linked together um, as as these radio telescopes are. But these are quite special because they've got instead of just a single radio feed at the you know, imagine what they're like. It's a dish antenna, you know, basically like a, a paraboloid, like just like the Parks dish. Only not quite as big. They're about twelve meters. Mm. Um, and then what you expect is all right that those radio waves are collected and beamed into what in the trade is called a feed horn. It's where the radio signal disappears into a a waveguide, and then you you do all your work on it after that. But these things don't work like that because that means you can only look in one direction in space the ASCAP telescopes have got something which you could call um, I guess an image sensor but a radio image sensor so exactly like you know your, your mobile phone or your camera which has a, a silicon image sensor in to sense the light and build up the picture uh, this uh, thing it's called a PATH which means phased array feed uh, that is a basically an image an image sensor. It's fairly crude. It's not a fine detail, but it's good enough that you can, with one of these antennas, you can look at an area of sky a hundred times the size of the full moon, the area of the full moon. Not bad. But, but they've done something even more clever in this search for fast radio bursts. They've used all the antennas individually. They've linked them together, but they've had them all pointing in just slightly different directions. So you get a fly's eye effect and you can look at a thousand times the uh, area of the full moon. And sure enough, they've netted uh, you know, a, a world record number of these fast radio bursts, 20, uh, 20 more in the last year. So in uh, other words, they've found a way of finding them. They found a way of finding them, that's mm. right. And um, what we hope is coming next, and I was talking to one of my colleagues a week or so ago who's involved with this work, is to be able to identify which galaxy uh, these things are coming from because we do know that they come from a long way away uh, and what tells us that is something called dispersion as the radio waves travel through space the high frequency waves um, get slightly ahead of the low frequency waves and that's because they interact with electrons uh, in, in deep space uh, and what that does is it slows down the low frequency signal um, and so you get the high frequency arise first it's just a very short time so you know still um, thousands of a second but there is enough of a difference between the high frequency and the low frequency that you you know that these things have come a very long way they've come through space through intergalactic space so we're talking about billions of light years away hopefully um very soon we'll be able to point to a galaxy and say this is where the fast radio burst is coming from and maybe even follow up with uh, you know, with optical telescopes when they happen visible light telescopes to see if there's a, a flash or something like that yeah. fascinating and yeah, I think it is too. It's a big mystery. We don't know what they are. They're I, probably I, I imagine they'll they'll decipher the message, and it'll be a long time ago in a galaxy far, far oh. away. <laughs> there was a fast radio burst. Ah, it's very exciting. Uh, yeah, because um, yeah, one more mystery solved. We hope. Well, it will be nice to solve it. That's right. Indeed, it's a, one of the big mysteries. But it's good to have mysteries as well. All right. Uh, we'll probably hear more about that down the track. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market. But uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I 
particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Now, Fred, to something unusual and yet fascinating, and that is um, auroras. We have auroras in the northern and southern hemisphere at various times, but um, uh, certainly much more spectacular up north. Well, let me qualify. More people see them up north than down south because of the uh, the way the, the population spread around the world. But uh, they are fascinating. They are truly fascinating. And you've, you've um, actually gone on expeditions to look at these things in the past. Uh, that, that's correct. Yes, I've um, uh, taken, I think, five expeditions up to far northern uh, Scandinavia and occasionally to Iceland as well. We've been to Iceland. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, the, the, being underneath an auroral display is just staggering. It's the whole sky is lit up with these green and sometimes magenta colours. Uh, really, and, and, and occasionally beige. Occasionally beige. That's right. <laughs> yeah, look, you do. You get a mixture of colours, and we now understand pretty well what causes this. This is these are subatomic particles from the sun, electrons and protons being being funneled uh, by the Earth's magnetic field to to interact with the atoms of the Earth's atmosphere, and that's what causes the colours. It's the, uh, the Earth's atmosphere being excited to display these colours. Uh, the, the path of the electrons is a curious one, though, because they, they go past the Earth and then fall back and come back in from the other side, the, the, the side away from the sun. It's a very complicated process, hmm. but well studied, and there are... Um, particularly in northern Scandinavia, there are several institutions which uh, are, you know exist to, to to basically map out the upper atmosphere and work out what's happening there. Uh, many of which I've visited. But one of the other things about the aurora, the northern lights, uh, and it, we, we are talking now about the northern lights, although the southern lights are symmetrical, so it would it would be the same. But as you say, there's nobody there to see them. That's right. Um, 
one of the things that has impressed me, I've, I've talked to physicists and lots of people who work on this up in northern Scandinavia, but also when you talk to, um, you know, the locals and particularly the Sami people, the, the indigenous people of that area, the Laplanders, basically, um, there's, a, there's a common theme that says you can hear the aurora that they do make sounds. Now, that, that comes as quite a surprise to me because I, I thought that uh, you would stand under these things and you would see them, but it would be in total Complete silence. silence. Yeah. It been that, has that been your experience? It has indeed. That's been my experience. No sounds at all. And um, scientists for a long time have been very, very sceptical about this. You know, oh, you, you don't hear things. It must have been the snow crackling or something like that. Mm. But now we've got... Um, really hard scientific evidence that there are noises uh, and it's actually some work that's been done in Aalto uh, uh, University which is in, in Finland um, and there's a team there that are using uh, whole sets of microphones to record any sounds that might turn up during an auroral display and sure enough they get them they pick them up and it, it's slightly more it, it's more technical than that because be, since they're using uh, many microphones set out in array they can triangulate so when they hear noises they can work out exactly where these noises are coming from and it seems to be that they typically come from um, what's called an inversion layer this is a layer of the atmosphere where the temperature changes rapidly um, uh, so it's probably colder near the, near the ground and then slightly warmer above uh, and uh, at about 70 meters above the ground um, that is where these you know where these auroral sounds seem to come from and they're speculating that the inversion layer causes the the charged particles in the air to be separated uh, and then come back together again with a little with a little clap because the the pressure's changing i'm totally surprised that an aurora which is you know way up there 90 kilometers is would the would have an effect on something 70 m meters, meters above, above the ground, the ground. Yeah, so it's all about, um, I guess it's more to do with the, you know, the particles uh, that, that that make it to the ground or make it much nearer the ground, that, that, but that don't see, uh, but you, that you don't see. They've lost the energy that you require to excite the atmosphere. Mm. Um, it's uh, so, but it clearly is linking uh, the sounds to the brightest aurora. They, they, apparently the, the sounds come when, you know when the um, when the aurorae are, are, are brightest, uh, they've 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 done a, what you call a spectral analysis. They've worked out what frequencies these sounds are, and they're right in the middle of the the audio spectrum. You know, so people can hear them. Uh, but they, so if you're in the right place at the right time under the right conditions, you will hear an aurora. Is right probably. Okay. So and, <laughs> and the sound is more like like a snap. You said. Well, yes. Apparently, there's a range of sounds, but one of the ones that we've got recorded that you might be able to play, Andrew, I'm is going a, to is, try. It sounds just like a pair of clapping sticks being coming together. You know the, the wooden clapping sticks. So this is what they sound like. If we can get this right. Yeah. It just sounds like someone warming up in a recording studio. <laughs> Hang on, let's try that again. Yeah. So that's, that's what it that's sounds right. like. Fascinating. So it, it is. There's, there's, there's definitely, um, you know, there's a definite click there. Um, so 
the 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 scientist who's doing this work, um, whose name is Unto Lane, uh, says um, people who talk and walk around concentrating on picture taking might never hear a single sound related to an aurora. <clears throat> You've got to stop all other other activities and focus on listening. We Finns are probably good at this because we've received more than 300 reports of sound observations during their uh, auroral acoustics project. Um, and he says uh, he's learned that a geomagnetic storm by itself isn't enough to produce them. You also require a strong inversion layer, uh, which acts like an electrostatic loudspeaker. Without it, there are no sounds. And that explains why these, a lot of these geomagnetic storms are silent. Um, he he says it's it's like geomagnetic thunder, which is a very nice way of putting mm. it. Yeah, fascinating. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and and uh, thanks to spaceweather.com because that's where we uh, we pick the sound up. Um, but uh, yeah, let's have another listen to it. There it is. Yeah, great. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Definitely. So next time, uh, those of you who are close enough to the northern hemisphere areas that um, pick up the aurora, uh, just. Shut up for a while. Have a look. <laughs> and stop going, wow, oh, look at that. Wow. Yeah. Well, you can't help it, can you? No, really? you can't. Absolutely they're, can't. They're quite amazing. Mm. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Uh, Andrew Dunkley here and Fred Watson there. Okay, we checked all four systems and King was a go. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, uh, we're going to tackle a couple of questions today, uh, mainly because they're really simple. Um, or... Maybe not. Uh, firstly, Aziz in Uganda, who's actually sent us a question before, wants to know if we can explain what causes ball lightning. Is it luminous plasma? Uh, now, I initially thought, ah, well, this is not an astronomical question, but you said there is a there is a connection. There is a connection. That's right. So, uh, yeah, ball lightning's. It's a bit like the story we've just done about the aurora. You know, it's one of these things that people have reported over many years. It's there are clearly enough reports to know. The ball lightning is a real phenomenon. That yes, it, and it, I've heard stories of it sort of going through walls and yeah. floating around in rooms and through passenger aircraft. All Evening sorts of air, stories. That's right. Yeah. So, so that seems to what it to be what it is. It's a uh, during a thunderstorm, during electrical uh, activity in the atmosphere, you sometimes get this plasma uh, that comes together and becomes luminous uh, and seems to be sustaining. It lasts for quite a long time. Now, I've never seen it. I would love to see it. Oh, me too. Um, but the, the, so it's not really not well understood. However, um, about probably two years ago now, a colleague of mine actually in the um, Queensland University of Technology, uh, who um, is really an interesting guy, he's a very good scientist. His first name is Steve, and I'm desperately trying to remember his second name, which is terribly embarrassing. If you're listening to this, Steve, I'm sorry, <laughs> on the spur of the moment. Um, it will come to me probably by the end of the story. Uh, but he, uh, he has investigated um, ball lightning, and there was a report of ball lightning uh, in Queensland. Actually, it's probably more than a couple of years ago. I guess it might be five years ago, something of that sort. Steve Hughes' name is, by the way. And you again. <laughs> um, and he uh, he realised that when the reports of this ball lightning were being were coming in, uh, it was at the same time as a fireball 
had, um, had been seen in the upper atmosphere. So a fireball is quite different. A fireball is a meteor, mm. a bright meteor that slashes through the upper atmosphere um, and uh, burns up. But unlike a meteor, which just looks like a shooting star, it's a great name for them because that's exactly what it looks like. Um, a fireball is much brighter because it's a bigger chunk of stuff. It's probably the size of a football or something like that. And it hits the atmosphere at 30 or 40 or whatever kilometers per second and burns up. And a fireball can light up the entire landscape. They're quite dramatic. I've seen several fireballs. Um, but uh, Stephen was able to link the fireball with the ball lightning. And the suggestion is that there is some kind of transfer mechanism between the upper atmosphere and the ground. And this, it's like your question about the aurora, you know, how aurora take place above 90 kilometers. How can that affect things going on at the inversion layer on the ground? Mm. And the same will be true with the, with the fireball. The fireball hits the atmosphere at about the same height, actually. It's the upper atmosphere, 90 or so kilometers. How can that affect uh, plasmas on the ground? We, we don't really know, but there are clearly mechanisms that allow that to happen. And I think... Um, as far as I know, Stephen's paper has been, you know, as, as it was uh, peer-reviewed. It's not one that's um, uh, just idle speculation. Uh, I don't think it has been discredited in any way. So I don't know what, the, there might well have been other work done on it since then, uh, which I'd be very interested to hear about. But, yeah, it looks as though there is a link with astronomy and ball lightning. So Aziz, yes, it is luminous plasma. We don't really know why, but it's connected to fireballs. Yep, that's right. Mm. Fascinating. I keep saying that word, but we're having a fascinating day. Well, I think um, it is. Yeah, so. yeah. Great question too, Aziz. Thank you. Let's move on to a question now from John Brooks from Kalala Bay in New South Wales, which sounds like a rather nice part of the world. Uh, if there is a particle or object at absolute zero, can we detect it with our current technology or is it invisible like dark matter? Um, paradoxically, uh, it doesn't become invisible. Um, so temperature, uh, as you, you know, is the result of particles vibrating, basically. And as you cool them down, they vibrate less and less. Uh, and so you'd think that when you get to absolute zero, uh, because absolute zero is defined as the temperature below which you can't, nothing can exist, uh, you would expect them to stop vibrating altogether and have zero energy. So uh, it, it, theoretically, absolute zero is indeed uh, the temperature at which particles are at their lowest energy points. But um, paradoxically, they don't lose all their energy. And that's because of quantum physics. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, quantum physics means that there is always an uncertainty. Um, and so even at absolute zero, there is something called zero point energy so you take away all the energy from the particles that you can remove but there's still some energy there and it's because of so actually it comes about because of the uncertainty principle you know you, you know i've talked about heisenberg's uncertainty principle before which says that you, you can you can know a particle's position or its momentum but not both to the same accuracy you can know it's if you know its position then there's an uncertainty in its momentum and if you know its momentum, that's basically its speed and its mass, you don't know where it is. Its position's uncertain, and that's at the basis of quantum physics. Mm. So the same applies to absolute zero. Um, you've still got uh, an energy. So if you know where a particle is, 
you don't know anything about its energy. <laughs> and that's why you can get to absolute zero. Don't shake your head. I, you. I, I'm, I'm, no. Do you understand? <laughs> I'm shaking out the fog. It's very, yeah, it's very know, confusing. It's but you, can't, you can't. So the bottom line is you cannot stop a particle completely because if you did that, then you would know both its momentum and its position exactly. And you can't know those two. So you can't stop the particle vibrating. So it still has some energy, even when it's at absolute zero. Gotcha. All right. Um, of course, we are sci you know, scientists and technicians around the world are trying to perfect uh, quantum computing, and they're, yes. they're on the cusp of uh, making some mileage in that regard. If we start to sort of get our heads around this stuff, it's going to make a huge difference uh, to the world because these things will be able to work at incredibly fast rates compared to current technology. Very much so, that's right. And that's some awesome. of the world's problems will be solved much faster with quantum technology. So um, yeah, getting getting our heads around this is, is getting ever closer. Not mine personally, but, <laughs> but in general, we, we are, I think they've already made prototypes of quantum computers, it I is. believe. Yeah, here in, in Australia, there are some leading scientists uh, working on this, one of one of whom I'll meet tomorrow night, in fact. Ah, yes, because you're in uh, Canberra at the moment, or as we Australians like to call the city of the centre of our federal government, Cantborough. <laughs> but um, so what's, what's happening in Canberra, Fred? Oh, dear, dear, dear. Well, I can't possibly, as a public servant, I can't possibly comment on that. <laughs> I can't possibly comment. <laughs> That's why it's called Cantborough. Mm, mm, fair enough. <laughs> so why are you there? Uh, or is that top secret? Oh, no, it's not. The Tomorrow night is the uh, award ceremony for the Prime Minister's Science Prizes. Uh, and um, I'll be helping to emcee it, in fact. Um, oh, lovely. Yeah, which is uh, we're going to do a double act, which I hope will be a lot of fun. Um, the reason why I mentioned the, uh, you know, the leading light in quantum computing, though, is uh, Michelle, Professor Michelle Simmons from UNSW, University of New South Wales. I just she's not a prize winner, but I happen to see her name on on the guest list. She's had many many awards, uh, and I thought I wonder if I'll get a chance to talk to her. I bet I bet I don't, but it would be interesting to do that. Well, you probably got more chance of talking to her than I have of talking to Harry and Meghan tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know. I think they'll make a beeline for you, Andrew. They probably they probably listen to Space Night. I I dare say they do. And uh, if they do, then I'm in Dubbo. I'm yeah. wearing the orange shirt. <laughs> yeah, good on you. With a Keep copy of you. my book tucked under my arm too. Very I think. Good. That's right. Mm. And before we go, one more thing, Fred. Uh, I would like to send a shout-out to David Astle at uh, ABC Radio in Melbourne, <laughs> who's a big fan of the show, and I know you talk to him regularly. So thanks, thanks, for, um, thanks for liking us, David. It's lovely. And as a former staff member of the ABC, I, I can't help myself. Good stuff. And, mm. uh, yeah, no, it, it's great to talk to David, and uh, he's... he's He's, he's a big fan, which is very nice to hear. Yes, I didn't think great. anybody listened to this, you know. Oh, look, not even Man Do the Cat. I know. <laughs> no, well, he's asleep. <laughs> Again? Yeah. Yeah, you're sure he's not dead? <laughs> no. He he's always enough. asleep when we talk to you these days. Yeah, he is, yeah. No, I've heard him sort of <laughs> rise and fall a couple of times recently. 
just not when we're recording. All right, Fred, thank you so much. And, and oh, thanks to Aziz and John for the questions. We really appreciate it. Uh, we, we do our best to answer as many as possible uh, and keep them coming. We'll do our very best again. And Fred, we'll catch you again in the not too distant future. I look forward to it, Andrew, and have a good week. Fred Watson, astronomer in charge. He is one half of uh, Space Nuts. And we'll catch you again next time. Thanks for listening. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.